Hello, and welcome to the Sinobabble podcast. This is episode 17, and in today's episode, we'll be talking about the Second Sino-Japanese War and China in World War II. In the last two episodes, we covered the communist regime in Yan'an during the period 1941 to 1945, how they went about solidifying their control over CCP-controlled areas, spreading their ideology through movements and campaigns. Of course, we also covered the communists' involvement in World War II, but generally speaking, the CCP wasn't at the forefront of the fighting during the war with Japan. Most of the frontline fighting was done by nationalist soldiers under the leadership of Chiang Kai-shek, and with the help of the Allied forces, though the extent to which any actual fighting was done has been called into question quite often. China's role in World War II and its importance in holding down the Japanese has been a sore point for China, which has claimed that it has never received the recognition it deserved from major powers, especially considering the losses suffered and the tragedies wrought among the Chinese people. Hopefully, in this episode, I can provide you with enough detail for you to decide for yourself whether the Chinese war effort was of global import or should just be relegated to the annals of national memory. So today we'll be discussing what happened to trigger a full-blown war with Japan in 1937, how this evolved into World War II, how China's nationalist government survived and under what guise, and finally we'll also be talking about China's bitter struggle against Japan until the end of the war in 1945. Before we get into any of that, however, as always, some context is necessary. I know that in previous episodes we've touched on Japan's slow expansion into China throughout the 1930s, but I don't think we've ever discussed why Japan was trying to muscle in on Chinese territory. I think the best way to explain this would be to turn the clock back a bit and see how the situation had developed from Japan's perspective since the late 19th century. The Western powers had arrived in Japan and China at roughly the same time. If you cast your mind back all the way to episode one of this podcast, you'll remember that when we discussed the Opium Wars and their aftermath, we talked about how China continued to resist as much as possible the imposition of Western power and knowledge. They even went as far as to implement developmental policies that deliberately excluded any semblance of Western thought, while trying to integrate Western technology into plans for greater militarization and industrial development. That all ended with the fall of the Qing dynasty and the launch of the Republic of China and the ensuing years of chaos since 1911. Japan took a slightly different approach. When US Commodore Perry rolled up to Japanese shores with huge gunboats in 1853, the Japanese deliberately capitulated in order to gain the upper hand. They believed that if they let the foreigners in now, they would be able to capitalise on the new technology that they brought with them and leverage it for their own benefit. At the same time, the Japanese government was undergoing a huge change, as the Tokugawa shogunate, which had ruled since 1600, came to an end when two samurai warlords reinstated the emperor onto the throne of Japan. This period, known as the Meiji Restoration, started off with a lot of political and social turmoil, as the previous system was undone, But by 1872-ish, the country was back on its feet and looking to get some of the glorious Western technological power that they had been promised. The Japanese embraced Westernization, becoming the most technologically advanced nation in Asia very rapidly. If you remember from previous episodes, Japan even acted as a surrogate Western country for China on occasion. Most of the translations of Western works went through Japan first, 
And many of the young men who sought a Western education in the first few decades of the 20th century often went to Japan instead of the West, due to geographical and cultural proximity. Many prominent Chinese figures, such as Sun Yat-sen and the warlord Jiang Zuolin, studied in Japan. But Japan wasn't just looking to exert cultural influence in Asia, but also to show off its newly fortified military might by dominating its neighbours and expanding its sphere of influence, which became more apparent as the 19th century drew to a close. The first incident of Japan's show of power was the First Sino-Japanese War, which took place from 1894 to 1895 and ended with the total defeat of China, as well as the cessation of Korea, Liaodong province, a peninsula in northeast Liaoning province that's of strategic naval and port positioning, and also Taiwan in the Treaty of Shinmonoseki. Emboldened by their win, the Japanese tried to wiggle their way from Korea and Liaodong into Manchuria proper, which set off the Russo-Japanese War from 1904 to 1905 and ended again with Japanese victory. After that, the Japanese received the previously German-held province of Shandong in China after the end of the First World War for their nominal role as ally. The Japanese were not always explicitly heavy-handed in their approach, and in fact they showed a lot of foresight in their political manoeuvres. In the 1910s, Yuan Shikai had accepted the 21 demands. Successive Chinese governments in the 1920s took out loans from Japan, and plenty of warlords had Japanese advisors. For example, Jiang Zuolin himself had around 50 Japanese advisors in his Manchurian army in 1928. All of this enabled Japan to leverage their political influence for physical infiltration deeper into Manchuria. This Japanese expansion into northeastern China did not go unnoticed at the time, and many Asia observers and analysts began to probe into Japan's reasons for this expansion. An article by John Orchard, who was a professor at Columbia University in 1930, entitled Japan's Expansion in China, shed some light on Japan's thinking, or at least how it was perceived by other people at the time. Quote, Japan's penetration of the mainland of Asia began in the last half of the 19th century, very shortly after Japan had surrendered her isolation at the insistence of the United States and European powers. It has taken many forms, ranging from the out-and-out annexation of Chinese soil, the leasing of territory, and the declaration of spheres of influence, to the attempt to secure control of resources through commercial domination. It has been inspired by a number of motives. Defence, the need for an outlet of the growing Japanese population, the search for raw materials for Japanese industries, and the hope of capturing markets for Japanese commodities. End quote. He notes that it was most likely that Manchuria would be used as a base for commodities export into China, as the market had huge potential, but it had tried to resist Japanese encroachment over the years through a series of boycotts. However, pure nationalistic fervour, coupled with militaristic demands, had their place in encouraging further expansion too. Japan was slowly transforming into basically a nationalist military dictatorship during this period, as the population, military and government became ever more emboldened by Japan's successive military victories. Despite the reluctance on the part of many of Japan's political leaders to enter into a protracted war with China, the military based in China, known as the Kwantung Army, was not so interested in listening. 
1928, officers in the Manchurian base assassinated the warlord Zhang Zuolin, and in 1931, they committed insubordination by invading Manchuria without permission, setting up a puppet state with the last emperor of China, Henry Puyi, as its fake leader. Japanese democracy and rule of law was further weakened by the assassination of their prime minister Inukai in 1932 and another attempted coup d'etat in 1936. The military agenda dominated Japanese politics, and it was a pretty ambitious agenda at that. Basically, the aim of Japan was to set up a bunch of puppet regimes just like Manchuria, or Manchukuo as it was known in Japanese, destabilise the Chinese economy, inject Japanese products, fragment the nation, and take their resources. Japan didn't necessarily want a military dictatorship within China, but more of a de facto ideological political leadership in the Asian region in general. I find this quite funny because I feel like that's basically what China has today. But anyway, their plans didn't just involve China, but also the resource-rich Southeast Asian island nations. However, the most important thing to keep in mind here is that Japan was determined to expand into Asia generally, and China specifically, and it wanted to do it fast. Many people believe that this is why, after a relatively quiet six-year period between 1931 and 1937, the Sino-Japanese War finally broke out into large-scale fighting after a relatively minor incident. There is a bridge around 10 miles west of Beijing city named the Marco Polo Bridge, or Lu Guoqiao in Chinese, which was once praised for its beautiful setting. In the modern era, an important railway bridge that linked railways going to Xi'an in the west, Beijing and Tianjin in the north, and Nanjing and Shanghai to the east had been built right next to it. The Japanese had been stationed around the Beijing and Tianjin areas for a number of years and frequently carried out military training operations in the surrounding areas in northern China, as did Chinese troops who were also stationed in the same area. On the night of July 7th, 1937, the Japanese reported that they had been under fire from Chinese troops when making camp for the night near the Marco Polo Bridge, and in the morning, one of their soldiers was reported missing. Now, it's long been thought that the whole thing was just made up by the Japanese in order to kick off a full-fledged war, but that's actually never been proven, not concretely anyway. All I can say is, it really doesn't help the Japanese case that this soldier that apparently went missing mysteriously showed up later unharmed. Nevertheless, this was the inciting incident for the outbreak of total war. It really didn't need to escalate uh, past sort of apologies exchange on either sides, but unfortunately both sides were already really tense and furious with each other. The Japanese commander in the region ordered an attack on the garrison town of Wanping, a town that, if captured, would secure control of all the important railway lines that I just mentioned. The Chinese fought back, but were repulsed, and Japan began to mobilise troops in northern China, fearing further retaliation. The Japanese demanded an apology from the Chinese, but Chiang Kai-shek and his advisers had been awaiting this moment. They were basically expecting war to break out any day since about 1931, so they refused to yield, stating that, quote, If we allow one more inch of our territory to be lost, we shall be guilty of an unpardonable crime. 
The issue had escalated from a matter of a lost life to a matter of principle. Fighting broke out around the Marco Polo Bridge area, and the superior Japanese forces soon pushed back against the Chinese, taking over the whole of the Beijing-Tianjin region. But Chiang was ready with another plan, although an extremely risky one that ultimately ended in disaster. Chiang decided that in order to restrict the superior Japanese military resources and basically catch them off guard, the fighting should move to the streets of Greater Shanghai, where the narrow turf would give the Chinese a tactical advantage and the presence of foreigners may alert the rest of the world to what was happening in China. On August 11th, Chiang placed three of his best equipped and trained divisions inside Shanghai, and when fighting broke out on the 13th, the Japanese were outnumbered around 6 to 1. The Chinese lost the advantage when the Japanese sailed in reinforcements and the inferior Chinese air force failed to bomb them, thus allowing the warships to devastate both the Chinese troops and the civilians of Shanghai. Around 250 to 270,000 Chinese troops were killed, which was around 60% of the nationalist forces, while the Japanese lost around 40,000 men. The Chinese withdrew to Nanjing in disarray, with no intention to fight, and as the Japanese approached and the Chinese soldiers under the command of a former warlord and KMT fled the city, the people in the city were left to suffer a terrible fate. The Rape of Nanking is one of the worst recorded atrocities of modern warfare, and is still, somewhat understandably, a sore point in Chinese-Japanese relations. When the city of Nanjing fell to the Japanese on December 12, 1937, the Japanese troops inexplicably wreaked havoc on its civilians, killing around 30,000 soldiers, 12,000 civilians, and raping around 20,000 women, many of whom died upon repeated assaults. The event was horrible, and I don't want to dwell on it. There are actually lots of really good documentaries about it. I think one of them is on YouTube. So if you're interested in learning more about this specific event and the reasons behind it and the aftermath, then I suggest you do watch one of those because they are very informative. In a way, this event helped the Chinese cause because the population had now grown distinctly more patriotic and anti-Japanese. The whole country was now united against the Japanese, and they would need that unity, as well as the determination not to surrender no matter what. The Nanjing government continued to retreat deeper into China's interior, first to Wuhan, then later setting up a base in Chongqing in Sichuan province, as the Japanese continued to take over the more developed eastern and southern coastal areas of China, as well as expanding their control over the north. By the end of 1938, all of East and South China had been lost, and puppet governments had been set up in Mongolia, under the vestiges of a Mongolian prince. In Nanjing, the reformed government had been set up in East and Central China under the warlord Liang Hongju, and then later Chiang's rival Wang Jingwei. And in Beijing, they set up the provisional government of the Republic of China under a different warlord named Wang Keming. Meanwhile, the KMT felt that, despite the seriousness of the situation, the hinterlands of China would be the perfect base not only for wartime operations, but for the continued functioning of Nanjing China in general. Whole factories were dismantled and moved downriver to China's interior, and the citizens of occupied areas had to make the decision as to whether to stay or to abandon their homes. Luckily for the Chinese army, 
the underdeveloped West and Southwestern provinces of Sichuan, Hunan, Yunnan, and Guizhou lacked roads, railways, and most forms of modern infrastructure, including things like electricity and sewage pipes, meaning that the Japanese were deterred from pursuing the KMT lest they be cut off from their supply lines. Unluckily for Chinese citizens, this meant that any and all moving that was done had to be done by hand. Predicting the outbreak of total war following the Marco Polo Bridge incident, the KMT moved some 120,000 tonnes of machinery, first to Wuhan and then later deeper into China. However, the move didn't go as smoothly as planned. As factory owners and their workers were also allowed to take up cargo space, fights often broke out as to whose possessions got to go on the barge. In some cases, people were even shot and killed. Besides the doors and windows of the selfish, most of the industrial stuff ended up also being quite useless to the war effort, as China's industrial sector had not sufficiently developed to enable effective wartime manufacturing. The fact that a lot of the stuff had to be literally dragged by hand by thousands of labourers just added insult to injury. In the end, the Chinese ended up relying mainly on foreign imports to supply artillery throughout the war. Strange class divisions also emerged during this retreat to the interior, as the middle and upper middle classes tended to be much happier to leave their homes, while the farming poor and the entrepreneurial rich tended to be more reluctant. Many artists, intellectuals and students fled to the interior, meeting the impoverished ethnic minority countrymen for the first time, and suffering true poverty, the likes of which many of them had never seen. Many of those who didn't follow the nationalists ended up joining the CCP in Yan'an, like we discussed in previous episodes. Whereas, on the other hand, many poor peasants and industrial workers in Japanese-occupied areas were not so keen to flee, as they had neither the money nor the will, and all they ever had was their small plot of land or their small family home, so they didn't just want to leave it behind. They had nothing to gain, and their whole livelihood to lose not to mention they had no allegiance either to the CCP or the KMT, and so they just decided to hedge their bets and hope they could survive under Japanese occupation. Many intellectuals did stay in Shanghai and Beijing, either working for the Japanese or remaining independent. Many of them were able to develop careers under Japanese-controlled universities, and even carried out illicit anti-Japanese propaganda campaigns in under-regulated foreign concessions in Shanghai. Many rich entrepreneurs also didn't bother to follow the KMT, taking their chances in Shanghai and Japanese-occupied Hong Kong, or taking their money and leaving for foreign shores like America. By the time 1939 had rolled around, the KMT had settled into the mountains, and a war of attrition had begun. Japan continued to secure their gains in the east, south and north, and a stalemate had been reached. From this point on, the decisions made by the KMT government determined how the war progressed until its abrupt end in 1949. Okay, so let's just take a break real quick and discuss the lay of the land at the beginning of 1939. So one important point of discussion among academics is the effect of the KMT's wartime policies not only on China at the time, but also after the end of the war. So let's look at how the nationalists are performing. How's their wartime track record looking so far? 
Okay, so they were off to a bad start in the early 1930s, as it was essentially their fault that Japan had been allowed to expand into Chinese territory, as the KMT had been too busy pursuing the communists throughout southwestern China during the Long March to pay any attention to Japanese expansion. Of course, if it wasn't for the Long March, the KMT wouldn't have been able to extend their influence into the still warlord-ruled isolated backwaters of Sichuan and Yunnan which were now of supreme importance in maintaining a semi-united front. However, this didn't really make up for the fact that overall, the KMT has been seen as basically corrupt and ineffective during this period, as opposed to what you would like, which would be a capable wartime government that was trying to build something among difficult circumstances. The general consensus among academics is that the war signalled the beginning of the end for the KMT. When compared with the experimental flourishing of the CCP, the KMT look paralysed by their incompetence. According to one writer, the weaknesses of the KMT in government included, quote, the limited reach of its political sway, the corruption and ineffectiveness of its administration, the self-destructive fights of its several factions, and the pervasive incompetence and demoralisation of its army. Okay, so it's not looking good. Some have tried to defend the nationalist government, pointing out that they did achieve some institutional rationalisation, and they managed to improve some mechanisms of central planning, starting with the state-owned enterprise system, as well as trying to institute the system of a planned economy. Both of these ideas were actually carried over by the CCP after the founding of the PRC in 1949. The KMT undoubtedly brought notable industrialisation and development to Chongqing and the surrounding area in which the KMT government was based during the war. However, a lot of these changes and so-called improvements failed to last the course of the war, and many of them have been criticised as window dressing by scholars and even contemporary observers who recorded the sights and sounds of wartime China from the nationalists based in Chongqing. So just to talk about Chongqing very quickly... Chongqing is an extremely mountainous city encircled by two rivers, the Jialing River in the north and the Yangtze River to the south. It's located on the eastern edge of Sichuan province and is one of the four municipalities that today is governed directly by the central government, along with Beijing, Shanghai and Tianjin. And it's the only one that's actually located away from the eastern coastal rich area of China. At the time of the war, however, Chongqing was noted for its poverty and backwardness, especially by the standards of upper river refugees. That's what those who had fled war-torn coastal eastern areas and central provinces were called. These usually richer and more modern refugees often compared Chongqing somewhat unfairly to contemporary cities like Shanghai, complaining about the lack of infrastructure, public transport and modern entertainment such as movie theatres and shopping districts. Beyond that, Chongqing had more basic problems, such as the open sewage and lack of refuse points, meaning that open waste and garbage flowed through the streets, only washed away by the frequent torrential rains in the mountainous region. Visitors and refugees who commented on Chongqing at the time noted the lack of housing for the poor, who mainly lived in shanty houses on the cliffs or boat houses near the non-existent wharf, and who sometimes set up shop and home on the riverbanks in the winter when the tide was low, only to have to hastily pack up their shops and homes in the summer with the rising tide chasing them up the cliffside. 
Observers mocked Chongqing's backwards ways and were horrified at their practices, such as the wearing of white turbans by labourers, as the colour white is closely associated with death and funerals. There was a common saying that Chongqing had three plenties, plenty of prostitutes, singing girls and beggars. People joked about how beggars would sometimes chase after their patrons in sedan chairs and rickshaws, often running after them for miles. However, on a more sombre note, the poverty leading to starvation in Chongqing was intense and only got worse during the colder winter months, when piles of bodies would be strewn in the streets. Thousands could die in a matter of months and foreign visitors were distraught to see so many bodies of children and infants among the deceased. This was the basis for the modernising course that the KMT undertook in Chongqing. But as noted earlier, most people saw these changes for what they really were, which was an attempt to oppress outsiders and stamp the nationalist authority on the city and the surrounding areas so as to have some show of power during the war era. First, the KMT overtook the municipal government, filling it with their own loyal and trusted staff. This new government drew up comprehensive plans to fully modernise Chongqing, bringing it up to coastal standards, plans which were never fully realised because of the continuous air raids by the Japanese throughout the 1940s, but also because by around 1942, the KMT had realised that the war would probably end within a few years and they'd be able to move back to their Nanjing base. Regardless, the KMT did make some improvements, such as widening roads, setting up rudimentary public transport systems and starting up a ferry service for people who lived in the outlying districts who commuted frequently to the Chongqing centre. Greater Chongqing was expanded to include 10 new districts serving government, industrial, recreational and residential needs. However, despite these wide-ranging changes, most of them were superficial. The new factory district imported factories from around central and eastern China, but they were never able to supplant the foreign imports the nationalists relied on so heavily. Sanitation was never improved, attempts to tackle prostitution and begging failed, and the large divide between the rich and the poor remained. It didn't help that many of those who had taken over the local government didn't even speak the local dialect, isolating the local elites and further marginalising the extremely poor. One contemporary observer said of the modernisation plans that, quote, This superficial approach to modernisation reflected the national government's limited commitment to creating anything more than a facade of modernity for the purpose of impressing foreign visitors. However, Chongqing still managed to serve its primary function as a wartime base of operations, if not a unifying point for the entire nation. The KMT relied heavily on foreign aid throughout this period. Surprisingly, their major donors were the Soviet Union, who had just as much interest in checking Japanese expansion as the Chinese did. Between 1937 and 1939, the USSR sent the KMT about 1,000 planes, 2,000 volunteer pilots, 500 military advisors, as well as other arms and munitions. As Soviet aid halted with Hitler's invasion of Russia in 1941, the KMT turned to the Western Allies for help. However, before Pearl Harbor, the Allies were reluctant to help the Chinese for fear of alienating Japan, sending only a few million here for the building of a road and buying some Chinese silver there so they could use the money to buy materials as long as they weren't using it to buy weapons to fight Japan. The British donated some money to help open the Burma Road in 1938, which ended up being a crucial supply line to the new capital of Chongqing. 
Chongqing and Sichuan formed the centre of operations for the nationalist government, while Yunnan province to the south was a major artery of supplies, as well as being the cultural centre, because this is where the University for Refugee Scholars and Students had been set up. The Burma Road, which ended in the Yunnan capital of Kunming, only provided a small trickle of supplies, but they were extremely crucial to the Chinese war effort. So when Japan cut off the road in 1942, the situation became more desperate. After Pearl Harbor, foreign aid increased and actual volunteer air forces and military advisors came to Chongqing personally. But the Europe First policy and the slow pace of aid meant relations between the KMT and the Allies remained frosty. As the war went on and the German and Italian advisers left China, the only advisers to hand were two Americans. Claire Chenault, the commander in charge of the Volunteer Flying Tigers Air Force, and Joe Stilwell, a forthright and principled military man with an excellent military record and good knowledge of Chinese. Unfortunately, Stilwell and Chiang didn't get on, and that's kind of putting it mildly. Stilwell referred to Chiang as the peanut, dismissed him as an ignorant, arbitrary, stubborn man and a dictator, and once apparently said of Chiang, Why can't sudden death for once strike in the proper place? Stilwell's thinly veiled hatred for Chiang, of which the nationalist leader was well aware, extended pretty much to all of Chiang's commanding officers, who Stilwell regarded as incompetent cowards for the most part. And he had good reason to think so. There was a general disappointment on the part of foreign governments and observers, such as journalists and envoys, as to how Chinese troops, officers and commanders behaved. In general, the Chinese didn't really like fighting, and basically convinced themselves that the Japanese would wear themselves out, and then foreign forces would clean them up. All the Chinese had to do was lay low and fight the occasional skirmish. This reflected badly on them in the eyes of those who had come to help, who were also disgusted with the attitude and behaviour of the higher-ups in particular. Firstly, they treated their men very badly, and troops were in a terrible state. Ordinary soldiers in China were subject to conscription, which applied to every man between the ages of 18 and 45, except for students, only sons, and other exemptions such as disability. Unsurprisingly, the number of students during the period 1939 to 1945 spiked considerably. Conscripted soldiers were forced to march miles to their postings to deter desertion. They were given little food as it was hoarded by officers and often little or no clothing, some marching barefoot and even being stripped at night so that they didn't run off. Many of them were strung together by ropes around their necks and only stopped to drink from puddles on the roadside. Unsurprisingly, disease was common and often went untreated due to the severe lack of trained medical personnel, especially outside of the Chongqing region. Death and desertion were high. And by the end of the war, about half of all men who had been conscripted were unaccounted for, either perishing on the way to join their battalion or having deserted, never to be seen again. Army officers were of poor quality and tended to be squabbling for power among themselves. And those who had been trained in the old ways in Chiang's old Wampoa Academy now felt themselves above retraining new methods, meaning their troops were often hopelessly underprepared for battle. There were some loyal commanders, however the majority were made up of ex-warlords who had built up regional power bases and were reluctant to follow Chiang's orders. 
This was especially because he tended to keep his best, most loyal forces off the front lines and basically force other commanders to go into battle. Those commanders in Japanese-occupied areas simply defected without putting up a fight, and those nominally allied to Chiang were, by the end of the war, plotting against him. Politics took command over strategy. The one commander that Stilwell did like, Bai Chongxi, was rejected by Chiang as he used to be a former warlord with a history of rebellion against the central government. Despite the fact that a temporary alliance could have helped the Chinese cause, Chiang allowed personal politics to get in the way of progress in the war, thus allowing chaos to ensue in the region. Nowhere was this chaos and lack of cohesion more evident than in the Battle of Ichigo. During a slump in the fighting, a debate took place as to what the Chinese were to do next. Stilwell wanted to pursue on-the-ground fighting, training up elite soldiers with better equipment and grinding out small victories to reopen the Burma Road and push back against the Japanese in South and Central China. Chenault argued for the cheaper and more bombastic airstrike, which he managed to convince Chiang would essentially wipe out Japan's air force in the region. Stilwell pointed out that a Japanese retaliation would be brutal, but his personal grievances with Chiang meant his message failed to get across, and Chiang went with the more impressive-sounding air attack. Labourers in the Chongqing region worked hard to expand China's airfields, and in June 1944, a unit of B-29 bombers led an air raid on railway yards in Bangkok, the Japanese island of Kyushu, and several industrial targets in Anshan in Manchuria, Sumatra in Indonesia, and Taiwan. The victory was short-lived, as the Japanese retaliation was, as predicted, harsh and devastating for the Chinese. Throughout 1944, the Japanese took the Hunan capital of Changsha and the corresponding crucial rail network, then moved on to the Henyang airfield, which, after some resistance, was destroyed. Following that, air bases in Guangxi province were destroyed, and the Japanese even pushed right up to the nationalist doorstep by taking the Guizhou capital of Guiyang, destroying all airfields, killing around half a million soldiers, and inflicting severe civilian casualties. The attack halted in December, as the Japanese had achieved their major aim, which was to destroy all the Chinese air force bases, and the American President Roosevelt was beginning to insist that Stilwell be put in charge of all future Chinese military movements. This was way too much for Chiang, who insisted that Stilwell be removed immediately. He left, probably happily, and was replaced by General Wedemeyer, or Werdemeyer as an American, in October 1944. This was just one aspect of how low morale during the war affected the KMT base areas. The ordinary population in KMT-controlled areas were also taxed heavily to pay for the war effort, and farmers were forced to make voluntary contributions of grain and other materials to the war effort on top of a tax in kind on agricultural produce. Inflation soared, and citizens were subjected both to high transport costs as well as the whim of arbitrary and corrupt nationalist officials. Reports emerged of peasants in former nationalist-held areas attacking and robbing soldiers after their failure at Ichigo, especially as the same soldiers had been responsible for extracting taxes during a famine in the previous year. Chiang was slowly losing his grip on the situation, and a KMT conference held in 1945 failed to boost his position. 
As he was drawing up long-term plans with General Wedemeyer about how to get through the possible several more years of fighting, he was simultaneously faced with the reality that Western allies were doling out parts of Chinese territory to the Soviet Union, such as the naval base at Dalian in northeast China, and were working to exclude China from all major decisions to do with the war and the aftermath of the war. The abrupt end to World War II, when the US Army dropped the two atomic bombs on Hiroshima and Nagasaki, was probably China's saving grace. At the same time, it was probably the death knell for the KMT and Chiang Kai-shek. So that was basically China's role in World War II, I know it was very brief, but honestly, there wasn't a lot of fighting. And I think that that was probably the main characteristic. The KMT and the CCP just kind of hunkered down in their bases while the rest of the population was subjected to the whim of the expanding Japanese empire. I want to talk a little bit more about China's contribution to the war effort, but more specifically about the discussions that have taken place over whether or not China is overlooked or whether their contributions were actually relatively minor and don't deserve the praise that China thinks that they do. To this day, debates are raised by both Chinese and foreigners as to the significance of China's role in World War II. Interestingly, most of the effort on the Chinese side is claimed by the current Chinese government, who of course are the CCP, despite the fact that the forces that did most of the upfront fighting were actually the nationalist forces. I think a better question would be whether or not what those forces did could actually be considered fighting or not. As discussed, a lot of foreigners and even Chinese in China at the time would state otherwise. Winston Churchill said at the time that considering China part of the Big Four was an absolute farce, citing the absolute failure of the Chinese military in moments of key importance like the Battle of Ichigo. In fact, China is often criticised for basically giving up in the mid-1940s, after the US had entered the fray, and some China-based foreign observers basically called Chang out for waiting for the West to sort out Japan on their behalf. The KMT was actually so complacent on the Japan front that they actually turned their attention back to hunting down the communists, which was not really appreciated by the foreign powers who had spent so much time and resources helping Chang to train his armed forces. Despite their disapproval, from 1939 onwards, Chiang had dedicated between 150 and 500,000 troops to blockading the communist bases in the northwest. On the other hand, it could be considered that China was judged too harshly and against standards that weren't really fair. After all, China was not as economically, technologically, and most importantly, militarily developed as the Western allied nations. I do agree with Churchill that China probably didn't deserve a seat at the big boys table just yet, but it was pretty obvious that they were no match for the new Japanese superpower and they were pretty much left by the West to deal with it themselves until it actually started affecting the West, for example, the attack on Pearl Harbor or when Japan invaded some French and British held islands in Southeast Asia. Wedemeyer insisted that, quote, the nationalist government of China far from being reluctant to fight, as pictured by Stilwell and some of his friends among the American correspondents, had shown amazing tenacity and endurance in resisting Japan, whereas no communist Chinese forces fought in any of the major engagement of the Sino-Japanese War. End quote. 
Of course, there was some fighting on the nationalist side. For example, they tried many times to defend Changsha between 1939 and 1941. And in fighting in Hunan in November to December 1943, the 57th Division of the Central Army fought with extreme determination, suffering casualties of almost 90%. In Hubei in 1943, the Chinese lost some 70 to 80,000 men against 3 to 4,000 casualties on the Japanese side. Critics of the Nationalists have tended to claim that these sort of brilliant, brave acts were actually undertaken by non-KMT generals, and on the rare instances where the Nationalists did take the offensive, it was because Chiang Kai-shek needed propaganda to convince the Allied leaders that China needed more aid. The Communists have also ridiculed the Nationalists' claims of bravery, for example by pointing out that until the Ichigo campaign, 84% of the Japanese troops were concentrated against communist forces and only 16% against the nationalists. The chapter on the war in the Cambridge History of China volume puts it like this, quote, Whatever may be the final judgment on the issue, it remains a fact that the nationalist forces persevered for eight long years against an enemy who possessed a vast technological superiority. The political, economic and human costs of this war of resistance were enormous. Yet, they did not abandon the Allied war effort, and their forcing the Japanese to maintain an army of about one million men in China contributed significantly to the eventual victory. In the final analysis, however, the most important historical fact is that by the latter stages of the war, from about 1942, The greater part of the nationalist army had lost the will to fight so that it had practically ceased to be capable of effective military operations. To this generalisation, there were exceptions. Stilwell and Wedemeyer's programmes to create a few high-quality Chinese divisions, trained, advised and equipped by Americans, had by 1945 begun to bear fruit. During April to June 1945, for instance, several of these divisions fought courageously and effectively in turning back a Japanese offensive in southwest Hunan. When the war ended, eight of these divisions had completed, and 22 more had begun the 13-week training schedule. The remainder of the 300-odd Chinese divisions, however, remained untouched. End quote. I'll leave it up to you guys to decide whether or not the Chinese contribution to the war was underappreciated or is exactly where it needs to be remembered. But nevertheless, the war ended not thanks to the Chinese, but in fact thanks to the Americans' atomic bombings in Japan. So this sudden Japanese surrender really did take everyone by surprise, and it brought up a whole new set of concerns, which sort of swept away all previous fears about Japanese domination. In China, the question was now who was going to rule the country. An important element of this question boiled down to how the Chinese population evaluated the events of World War II. How did the KMT perform versus the CCP in terms of military, ideology, culture, unity and economy? Uh, It wasn't looking good for the KMT, let's just say that. I don't want to give too many spoilers before we actually get to the episode, but the gap in wartime performance was really what put the KMT on the back foot when it came to the civil war from 1945 to 1949. China was divided into two camps, the Soviet-backed communists and the US-backed nationalists, in a four-year struggle that many have recast as the first military clash of the Cold War, which then went on to last several decades. 
I feel like a lot of these episodes are getting a little bit depressing recently. And I'm just going to warn you now, it does not get any better for like a really long time. I'm hoping to start off the new year with the founding of the PRC in China. If I can cover all of the civil war and, spoiler alert, the victory of the CCP over the next couple of weeks. That at least will be somewhat of a bright spot in what is otherwise a sort of dreary, harsh, ideologically draining period in Chinese history. So get ready for all of that. Hopefully in between now and the new year, we'll have Emily back on as well. And we'll be discussing a contention that I didn't even know existed until she herself brought it up, which is the debate over whether the Japanese war began in 1931 or 1937. Personally, I think it's fascinating whenever these disputes arise in academia, so hopefully we can shed some light on the issue, and if you're interested, please do tune in to listen to that discussion. In the meantime, that's it for now. I hope you guys enjoyed this episode. Don't forget to check out the Sinobabble website at sinobabble.com, as well as the YouTube channel and Twitter account of the same name. Some of you have been sending me emails through the website, which I do read and respond to. So if you have any questions or comments, please do reach out anytime at info at Thanks so much for listening and I hope you tune in next time.